Tom Carey investigates Roswell, and he probably does it better than almost anyone. He has authored and co-authored more than 30 published articles in a small library on the subject. Tom has appeared on Larry King Live, Coast to Coast AM with George Norrie, and just about everywhere else. Tonight I have Tom in the studio, and we're going to talk about, well, we're going to talk about Roswell. That and more coming right up on My Alien Life. My Alien Life is recorded live from atop the Northern Rocky Mountains and is available on Spotify, Stitcher, iTunes, and everywhere fine podcasts are found. My website is at www.myalienlifepodcast.com. There you will find my email address, all previously recorded shows, and more. I am Cameron Brower. This is My Alien Life, and the podcast starts right now. Bufon as a state section director around Philadelphia just to investigate some investigate some cases right rather than just read about them I wanted to investigate some and uh, around Philly we didn't have very many cases uh, I joined QFOS the Center for UFO Studies uh, out of Chicago uh, the old Alan Hynek started that and uh they had a bi-monthly journal of publication, and I read about these two guys, Kevin Randall, uh, who I did an interview with yesterday, uh, and Don Schmidt were teaming up to reopen. This was like 1991, 1990-91. They're reopening the Roswell case because it had lain dormant since the first book came out in 1980, the Roswell incident. And uh, the book had, uh, the, the subject had lain dormant. They were reopening it and they wrote a few articles for the QFOS publication called the International UFO Reporter. So I said, wow, this is really interesting because I did, I did read the uh, Roswell incident book and I liked it. I said, boy, this is like a real case not like lights in the sky. So I called up Kevin Randall with my background in anthropology and archeology. span I called up Kevin Randall. I said, what have you done about finding the archeologists who allegedly had discovered the downed craft with the bodies? He says, well, we interviewed one or two archeologists in New Mexico, but they didn't know anything and we didn't go any further. I said, well, look, since the 
archaeologists were allegedly from the University of Pennsylvania in Philadelphia. I said, let me go down to the university in Philadelphia and nose around. And uh, they said, oh, well, you know, have at it. So uh, I called up William Moore, who was the co-author of the Roswell Incident book, and I said, who were the archaeologists that you talked to uh, for your book at, at the University of Pennsylvania? And he gave me, he gave me their names. Uh, one was a, a fellow named John Cotter, and another was, uh, his last name was Bales, B-A-I-L-E-S, Bales, something like that. So I went down there and interviewed them both. And Bales claimed that he didn't know anything about it, never heard, you know, don't know anything about it. Cotter knew all about it. And I said, wow, this guy, this guy really knows everything about the Roswell incident. Uh, but in the end, he said, well, you know what it really was? I said, no, you, you know, keep going. He says, it was a V2 rocket with a chimpanzee aboard. I said, oh, <laughs> my goodness. I know it's not, I, I, you know, oh, my. So I dropped it there. And uh, the next week, I went down to the, their library in the uh, the uh, archaeology building. You know, they have a building there dedicated to archaeology and anthropology. I went into their library, and I looking up the certain archaeologist that they thought was involved, the guy named, uh, what was his, I can't remember his last name now. Uh, but anyway... I found a book by him, and it had his picture, and this was the guy that uh, Stan Friedman was saying was the chief uh, archaeologist out there in the field that stumbled upon the crashed UFO. And uh, so I uh, wrote down his name. Uh, they didn't have the, the uh, dust cover on the book, but I wrote down his name. I wrote to the University of Kansas to get the book cover dust cover and uh, the picture of this guy in the book was the one that Stan had done a uh, identikit sketch a forensic sketch about and it was a it was a it was him and so I called him up he lived in New Mexico he was a degreed archaeologist and uh, you know I wasn't there I, I you know I was over in uh, Arizona doing work with uh, at Fort Apache etc etc so that was my introduction to actually working with uh, Kevin Randall and Don Schmidt, this is 1991, was uh, finding the archaeologists who were allegedly at the crash site. And, jo and John Cotter was. I determined that later on that John Cotter, who did a lot of work at the Clovis site near Portales in New Mexico, he was at the site. Uh, he lied to me. Uh, but uh, we had a uh, number of pieces of information that put him there at the site. He, he died in 1999, so I wasn't uh, able to confront him with it. And uh, so that's 1991. I hooked up with Randall and Schmidt. Uh, Randall and Schmidt broke up in 1995. And in 1998, I'm on the board of directors at QFOS. Down comes Don Schmidt from uh, Wisconsin down to Chicago, where we held our uh, uh, meetings twice a year and Don said well he was going to New Mexico the next month which would have been May of 1998 and he says does anybody want to go with me and uh, one of the other fellows put up his hand he says well 
oh, right now it's 50-50. Well, you know somebody who tells you it's 50-50, that's a no. <laughs> so I put up my hand and said, I said, Don, I'll go with you. So Don and I went down to New Mexico. It was our first trip together as a team. And we've been a team since uh, May of 1998. So I don't know how many years that is, but uh, that's, uh, I don't know, 27, 27 years that we've been a team. Let me just take five so seconds here, though, because you, you mentioned him, and I want to mention who you are. If you know anything about UFOs or Roswell, you know my guest is Tom Carey tonight. Mr. Carey has researched, written, and lectured extensively about Roswell and is still at the forefront of research of an area that continues to get much attention after 72 years. So, Mr. Carey, thank you so much for joining me, and welcome. My pleasure to be with you, Cameron. Just call me Tom. Hey, uh, how is Kevin Randall? You said you talked to him. I, I don't hear much from him, but I was um, just stumbled upon a video that I was looking at yesterday, and, and um, I was wondering about him. Yes, well, we had been good friends uh, right from the start, but uh, we had a falling out uh, about, uh, let's say, 2015. It was my doing because I felt he had been uh, overly aggressive in trying to disprove uh, a uh, uh, an, an what do you call it an, an initiative an initiative that we were putting together about a pair of uh, slides that someone had brought forth of, of, that showed a what to me looked like an alien body one of the Roswells and uh, we had a falling out over that. It lasted until, what's this August? It lasted until last month, by the way. Uh, we were both down in Roswell at the same time at the museum. And uh, we were both speakers down there at the International UFO Museum and Research Center uh, last month. And uh, uh, Kevin uh, was uh, sitting at a table about uh, 20 feet away from me, facing me. And I, I was at the table and facing him, I'm, I'm thinking, well, this is not going to work. So uh, Kevin came over and uh, we shook hands. And at that point, we uh, I I buried the hatchet. So so, so, we've been, so uh, when when move. you when you have big personalities, well, not personalities, but you you guys are all smart, Kevin and you and Don Schmidt. Um, when you're researching, you know, at this level, and there's obviously a lot of exposure and a lot of of questions that are being answered and. And um, you, you guys are the, the people that are in demand when somebody wants to know about Roswell. Have you always shared theories and questions or has there been more of that in the past where you, you're competing or maybe even um, locking horns a little bit? There is no sharing. <laughs> <laughs> I've heard that. There, but is, I there is no sharing. There's com we're competing. Uh, we're competing entities, even, even though... You know, we're all we're all going in the same direction. Uh, our work is our work, and uh, Investigator X is Investigator X's work. There's there's no sharing because uh, we put a lot of uh, uh, time and effort into this, and it's, to say nothing of the money that we put into our research, and why why give it away? Uh, if if we weren't writing books, we would we would certainly no doubt share it but uh, you know we're all writing books and we want to have material that that's ours for our books and uh, that's basically 
I mean, this goes for, you know, in, say in anthropology, you know, uh, there's no, there's very little sharing because uh, Professor X wants to write a book, you know, and uh, Professor Y wants to write a book. So if they each have their own, have developed their own information or maybe their own theories, uh, save it for the book. Don't share it with, uh, with your competitor. I mean, that's the way life is, you know. So uh, that, uh, that's the way it is because we get the question all the time. Why don't you guy? Why don't you just share cool your information? Oh right, um, we've spent we've spent almost thirty years on Roswell. We're gonna we're gonna share what we developed over thirty years with someone who hasn't put in one one hundredth of the effort. I'm sorry, it, it doesn't work that way. Uh, and I'm just telling you how it is there, Cameron. It's. Uh, <laughs> very little sharing. Well, I appreciate that because I think that honesty is very important. And, and many of us, of course, feel that that is the dysfunction of this, of this functional group of, of people yeah, who are the, out there researching. The only ones that uh, behave this way, every, everybody does, uh, you know, you want to, you want to uh, receive the fruits of your efforts. Why give it away to someone else who will just take credit for it or you know what I mean? It's, well, uh, it, it does it, happen in other disciplines too. You, I mean, it, like you said, in anthropology, it happens and it happens everywhere. So, um, in science, it happens everywhere. Yes. Yes. Uh, uh, every, every new theory has its critics, uh, Charles Darwin, when, uh, you know, the origin of species, boy, he took a lot of, uh, flack over that. Uh, and, and, Especially up front, when new theories come out, that's where most of the attacks come. Uh, even when the theories are correct, uh, uh, something new, especially discovered by somebody else, oh boy, that's uh, it's a blow to your to your ego. You know, why didn't I discover that? And, uh, that's that's the way a lot of people think. So, most do you do you feel that you approached? your research from a genuine skeptic point of view or somebody who's extremely objective? And did you ask the hard questions? Um, Cause I'm going to ask you some questions that actually you've asked in the past. And um, I just want to know if, if you feel that you've asked the right questions and were extremely objective. Well, I went into uh, certainly Roswell after I read the book, I said, boy, there's something to this. So I, I went into it with a positive, uh, uh, not as a, Don Schmidt and uh, Kevin Randall uh, tell me that they went into the, their research as skeptics. But uh, after interviewing some of the witnesses down in Roswell, we're talking about 1988 now, uh, they went in as skeptics, but uh, just interviewing some of the firsthand witnesses, they changed their minds. And uh, it wasn't that they were planning to do that. That's what, that's what the, the witnesses convinced them that, that this was really something. And uh, so I piggybacked on, uh, you know, their research and uh, the, the research that went into the first book as uh, I was positively disposed towards Roswell when I went into it it's because it, it, to me it, uh, it, it was saying something. And, uh, but it didn't stop me or Don or Kevin from uh, an asking the, the, the critical questions. And uh, after a while, if you interview enough people on a subject, you get a sixth, sixth sense 
about when they're making it up and uh, giving you the real facts. And you, you, you develop that sense fairly quickly. And, uh, you, uh, you know, and it dictates that you ask certain questions. So uh, I don't feel that we left any questions unsaid. Certainly some witnesses died before we could get to them and before we, uh, before we could uh, do follow-ups. Uh, we had a, well, I had a witness here in Philadelphia who uh, played for the Philadelphia Eagles. His name was Tom Brookshire. He was a defensive back, all pro. Uh, his career ended early with a broken leg in 1961. But he was from Roswell, New Mexico, which I found out late. And so I called him up on the phone when I got back from Roswell and interviewed him for about two hours. And he gave me a lot of information over the phone, which turned out to be very helpful. And I had always planned to do a video and interview, uh, interview of him, but he passed away rather quickly uh, from cancer and nobody knew he was sick, but he passed away uh, within the year uh, of, of uh, gallbladder cancer. And I said, oh, my goodness, I, I, that's what I get for uh, delaying what I wanted to do. So things like that. Well, I think but, it's, uh, it, too, it's an odd thing that, that you go into this research and um, there are people dying. I mean, there was people who were involved in that investigation uh, 72, 70 years ago that, or even 60 years ago that, that were old then. And um, perhaps you felt like you're playing catch up this whole time and trying to, trying to get as much information from them as possible because they did have a time limit, you know, they were going to expire. Of the hundreds of uh, witnesses first and second hand over the years that we have interviewed, we're up to around 600 now. I can only think of two that are still alive. Wow. I can only two that are still alive. And uh, I would have to call them tomorrow just, just to make sure that they are still alive. (laughs) Because uh, look at it this way, Cameron, if you're 20 years old in 1947, you are 92 years old now. Right. Absolutely. So somebody 20 years old for round numbers would be 92 today if he's still alive. All of the officers are gone. There's no doubt that all the officers are gone. And, uh, I'm sure there's still a few out there, but just to give you some idea of what we're up against the, uh, I read recently that during world war two, and that's basically what we're talking about is the world war two generation, great, the greatest generation, uh, the United States had 16 men and women in uniform during the war, 16, I'm saying 16, 16 million. Right. <laughs> 616 wouldn't have got us, gotten us very far. It would have been over quick. <laughs> we had 16 million men and women in uniform. Today, 2019, there were just a little less than 500,000 still living. And according to the Veterans Administration, we're losing 350 a day. So I did some quick mathematics, and that would mean that within three to four years, all of those would be gone. Right. All of the remaining would be gone. So 
uh, as far as Roswell is concerned, that the, that we're talking about just a few who still might be alive. And of those, how many would be capable of being interviewed? Because, you know, the, the diseases of old age, uh, you know, you name them, uh, you know, uh, uh, all kinds of uh, maladies would preclude their being interviewed. So uh, we have a book coming out next year. It's already at the printers. Uh, Don Schmidt and I, it's our seventh book that we've written together about Roswell book coming out next year called case closed. And the reason the case closed is that everybody's dead. Right. <laughs> that, uh, that was, uh, that were firsthand witnesses. So, uh, and, uh, we're getting, we're, we're only getting children and grandchildren now, even if we get those uh, to interview. And, uh, so even some of the children are gone now. And even some of the grandchildren are gone now. So this case is, uh, we're at the end pretty much. The only thing we're missing, like I said, we, it's a witness case. We have, uh, about 600 witnesses, first and second hand that we have interviewed that have had information about the case. That doesn't mean everyone knew everything. Everyone only knew their own, own little snippet of what they knew about the case. It's been our, task to put those like a jigsaw puzzle put those little snippets together into a timeline uh, jigsaw puzzle that makes sense and uh, we believe we've already done that the only thing we're missing is an artifact a, a piece of physical evidence that is the only thing we are missing we know that there are pieces out there the military didn't get everything because we we've been out to the crash site many times and it's very windy out there the uh, pieces of wreckage that came to Earth after the ship exploded were very, very thin and light. And they could, they certainly blew all over the place. And I'm sure that GIs being GIs, they didn't get everything. So uh, uh, one of these days, somebody's going to find a piece out there. Or we know some of the ranchers who got to the site first you know, pocketed souvenirs. We know some of the ranchers have pieces, maybe some one of those will come forward. But uh, that's our hope. We've had several archaeological digs out there. Uh, the biggest one was done in 2002, uh, supervised by the University of New Mexico's uh, Office of Contract Archaeology. And we had a, you know, it was a regular uh, PhD archaeologist uh, headed it up. And uh, of course, I was there and Don Schmidt was there and we had volunteer diggers out there. And we dug at the main crash site, but uh, we didn't find any uh, pieces of the ship uh, because that was the site where most of the wreckage had come to rest and that the Air Force concentrated on and cleaning up. And uh, if a piece comes, comes to light, it's not going to be from that site. It's going to be from uh, the periphery or even far away, maybe a mile or two, that the wind... Uh, the, you know, you should know this from your archaeology. Uh, uh, they call them aeolian deposits, uh, windborne, mm -hmm. right. uh, windborne deposits. And, uh, well, it, it'll be something like that, or a rancher or some former military person comes forward. Well, folks, I've had a piece all these years, and uh, I've kept it to myself, and here it is. That, that's how it's going to arrive, hopefully someday. So were any, were any limits put on that uh, last excavation that um you said it was in 2002 
That was the big one, yes. So uh, what type of dig was that? Did they actually, I mean, was it anything goes? I mean, obviously you don't have the time or the resources to spend as much as you need to, but how'd that work? Right, well, it was it was sponsored by the Sci-Fi Channel. They paid for everything. And we, uh, we were, a lot of uh, volunteers from all over the country signed up, but uh, only about 15 showed up. And uh, so we were undermanned uh, considerably, which cut into how much land we could actually investigate. We did slip trenches, you know, maybe uh, six inches to eight inches deep because we're talking about something that uh, fell to earth, uh, well, 2002, that's what, 60 years, I don't know, I don't know if that's 55, 60 years after the fact. So we didn't have to go down that far. Uh, we didn't find any pieces of the, sh- of the ship, but we found what we thought was one of the gouge- gouges that the uh, ship had skipped across the, the the desert floor and cut a gouge. We think we found that. Uh, but we didn't find any pieces. And like I said, that was uh, uh, we in the last day, because we didn't have, Enough diggers. We brought in a uh, what do you call those scoopers? The uh, the the machine with yeah, the you did big some backhoe work, some excavator backhoe. and backhoe. Yeah, the the archaeologist's favorite tool, the backhoe. That was my <laughs> my favorite tool. <laughs> <laughs> so we had uh, we brought him in, and uh, he cut across the alleged gouge uh, crease at right angles, and we believe we found the gouge. Uh, uh, we, we saw the aeolian deposits formed a perfect V in the ground. So uh, that was our biggest find. But uh, we've been out there a couple of times since on our own with, um, you know, radio shack type metal detectors. And there's a fellow out there uh, who lives in Roswell. He's been out there a couple of times on his own without our knowledge or permission and claims to have found some little pieces of what looked like to me, aluminum. And I know from the witnesses, there were, there were no pieces that small that he, he, you know, he's found little pieces, maybe an inch long. Uh, and, uh, they're, to me, they look like pieces of a gum wrapper that had, uh, you know, been somebody threw away uh, or a piece of a, of a uh, metal container of some sort. But uh, he says they've been tested and they've had funny readings, you know, that, oh, they're something that couldn't have been made on this planet. Uh, I personally don't believe it, but that's my opinion. So uh, so that's what we've done archaeologically speaking. But like I said, I think uh, uh, we're not going to find what we're looking for that way. It's going to have to be something fortuitous somebody out in the desert for some reason uh, camping or something and you know trips over a piece or sees something strange and uh, happens to you know be a piece of this uh, ship or one of the military people or one of the ranchers it's going to be from one of those uh, sources is it still a ranch i mean are there still people working is there cattle out there what's out there what what's what's happening uh, the uh, the crash site itself is on private property, but it's 
totally surrounded by a Bureau of Land Management, uh, federal land, yes, federal state. So in order to get to the crash site, you have to, uh, uh, which is privately, and you have to cross federal land. But, you know, to get there, you have to have the permission of the owner who owns right. the property. Uh, uh, Don Schmidt and I have permission as long as we let them know. But these people that show up unexpectedly, they don't have permission, and they're they're if they're found, they're uh, taken off. They're you know they take them away. I mean, remove them from the property. So, and we've had people try to salt the site with uh, nails and things, the metal things. You know, you'd be surprised what goes on. It's uh, people trying to thwart what it is you're doing. Uh, makes you wonder don't they have enough to do in their life you know so if you wanted to uh, let me ask you this if you wanted to convince someone that there was a ufo crash at roswell and you could pick any three pieces of evidence that exists to persuade them what would they be well they're all dead now uh but the, the, you're talking about you're people talking- you mean of ones that we interviewed? Well, just any piece of evidence that 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 we have. I mean, what do we have? That uh, I mean, I know we have people, and um, yeah, they're they're soon all to be gone. But um, yes, uh, what I would suggest is they read our first book, Witness to Roswell. We've had so many people say I was I was on the fence, or I didn't believe uh, until I read your book. Now I'm convinced. So I would say read. Read our first book, Witness to Roswell, and read our current book. Uh, this is where I get my plug in for our book. Uh, read our current book, UFO Secrets at Wright-Patterson, uh, Eyewitness Accounts from the Real Area 51. Now, when I give talks, I'll, I'll ask someone, I'll ask the audience, how many of you have heard of Area 51? And all, most of all, their hands go up, Right. Right. Then I'll say, well, how many of you heard right of Wright Patterson? And very few hands go up. Well, Wright Patterson was Area 51 before there was an Area 51. That's where all that was the uh, the brainchild of the Air Force. That's where all the back engineering took place. That's where all the foreign technology was investigated. That's where all the new aircraft were developed before Area 51 in Nevada came into being. So I would say read Witness to Roswell, still available at Amazon. And our new book, which uh, came out in May, it, it reached number two on Amazon in their all UFO books sold in the world. It reached number two. The number one book I never heard of, so I don't know what's going on there. <laughs> but, uh, but it reached number two. And uh, it's about the secrets that took place at Wright Patterson Air Force Base in Dayton, Ohio, which is where all the alien artifacts were stored, where they were analyzed, where all the research was done uh, prior to the development of uh, Area 51 in Nevada. We think we think the alien artifacts. You know, Senator Barry Goldwater tried to get into what they call the Blue Room at Wright Patterson. We have a whole chapter on that. We have a whole chapter on the famous Hangar 18, which everybody seems to have heard about. We have a whole chapter on how that came about and what what Hangar it really is. But uh, Barry Goldwater, when he was a senator from Arizona, 
Uh, most people don't know that he was also a reserve Air Force Major General. Two stars. And uh, so he's a senator in charge of the Senate Armed Services Committee in 1963, tried to get into the Hangar 18's Blue Room, where all the aces, uh, so he says he called up uh, the uh, Air Force Chief of Staff, General Curtis LeMay at the time. He said, General, and they were good friends, LeMay and Barry Goldwater. He said, General, I hear there's a, you have a room here in uh, Wright Patterson. I'm, I'm here now uh, that has a lot of this, uh, the uh, UFO uh, uh, remains and uh, uh, wreckage and things like that. Uh, might I go in that room, General? And Barry Goldwater, he told this story on the Larry King show. He said, uh, uh, LeMay, it was the only time LeMay ever got mad at him. He said, LeMay cursed him upside, up one side and down the other. He said, no, you can't go in that room. Hell no, you can't go in that room. I can't go in that room, which I don't believe. Uh, and if you ever ask me that ask me that again, I'll see that you're court-martialed. Well, thank God they were friends, right? Um, so Goldwater dropped dropped the subject at that point. He's pretty... That was, 19, that was that what was year? I'm sorry, that was 1963. Right. He's a pretty remarkable guy. I mean, he had a, a, a brilliant military career as a pilot. I guess he had flown over, I don't know, it was like 150 different types of aircraft and and um, even the B-52 Stratofortress and, and uh, later in his career. And so he was, he was, he had a lot of... Uh, he had a lot of military experience, so it's really surprising, or not surprising, rather, that um, that he wasn't allowed he had, there as well. Yeah, he, he wore two hats. He was a elected U.S. senator, very respected on both sides of the aisle, uh, unlike today. Uh, he was also wore the Air Force hat of a major general. And uh, he was friends with... Uh, the commander of the Roswell base at the time of the incident, the uh, uh, formerly Colonel, but uh, later he wore four stars, General uh, uh, William Butch Blanchard. That's where he heard about the Roswell case was from his friend, uh, General Blanchard. And so when uh, one trip to Wright Patterson, he said, well, I've heard about this uh, blue room here. And uh, I'd like to see what, because Goldwater was a, he was a ham radio operator. He was also a UFO buff. He was a UFO buff, buff from way back. And uh, so he's, he tried to get into the blue room to see that stuff for himself. And uh, he was turned down. And if you're going to turn down Barry Goldwater, who, who are you letting in? <laughs> so that was uh, that's in our book. And uh, uh, it's one of those interesting stories. That, that he told on the national television. So when when they when the military and the government are able to keep secrets so long, I mean that's that's miraculous in itself. And and you asked you and Don wrote a paper, and I'm not sure when this was, but you had asked the question, and I'm wondering if you have an answer now. How could such a monumental event, such as a UFO crash in 1947, be kept a secret so long? You know how and why does that happen? Well. 
it hasn't been kept secret. Well, it's been uh, leaking. For, yeah. Bits <laughs> and pieces. To answer your question, uh, we, we, we deal with that in the book. Uh, there were three target uh, audiences that they had to, to contain. The first one was the national press because the first story that went out, and there's arguments about the first story that went out that said it was a, that the Roswell Army Airfield had captured a flying saucer. That's the term they used. That headline, once it got on the news wires, went around the world, went around the world. And uh, we argue about whether that was a local faux pas or that was a, a, a designed way of handling the story because the next, next day the, uh, the story had been retracted that it was not a flying saucer, but the airmen, the officers and the airmen at the Roswell, which was a sack face, the only atomic equipped bomb group in the world that ended World War II in Japan by dropping the atomic bombs on Hiroshima and Nagasaki was the 509th bomb group in Roswell, that they somehow couldn't tell the difference between a spaceship from another world and a radar target, a, a tinfoil and rubber weather balloon with a, uh, with a radar target attached to it. They couldn't tell the difference is what, is what the new story was. It was a weather balloon, not a flying saucer. And that was good enough for the media because they, they dropped the story cold turkey right then. It was a two-day story back in 1947. July 8 and July 9 it was a flying saucer one day, a weather balloon the next day, end of story. So the press was taken care of. The next group that had to be taken care of uh, was the military people on the base, the Roswell base. We're talking like uh, 10,000 people on the base or more. And of course, they were all buzzing about, and especially those who had been out to the crash site came back telling stories of seeing little people, little aliens, and all sorts of things. So uh, the officers were easy to handle because, you know, officers are, uh, what do you call them? I'm an officer and a gentleman. So they, the officers were easy to handle because they, you know, they appealed to national security and things like that. And, uh, but the enlisted men, they were all herded together in the various units and threatened with prison in Leavenworth if they wanted to talk about it or if they didn't keep silent about it. They all had to sign non-disclosure uh, agreements, but they were also threatened with Leavenworth if they didn't stop talking about it. And uh, that was pretty much... Uh, those two things, the non-disclosure agreement and the threat of jail time, was enough to, to you know, diminish the uh, enlisted ranks from uh, discussing it further. The one group that also had to be silenced had no direct authority. I mean, they were not under the direct authority of the military, were the ranchers that got out to the crash site prior to the arrival of the military because uh, the ranchers, you know, they, they 
knew that something had crashed. They heard it the night before. They heard the explosion, and they got out there first. And uh, we've interviewed some of those. Most of them were, were from the Corona area rather than Roswell. And they were threatened with their lives. They weren't threatened with prison. They were threatened with their lives if they wanted to talk about the crash and what the what they had seen. Because a number of them had gotten to the site. They saw the wreckage. They saw the little bodies. And they knew that they weren't from Texas. And uh, so they were th- they were threatened with their lives. Have, you, and, have uh, you ever have you ever heard of any other situation occur where um, witnesses were were threatened with their lives and and somewhere other than Roswell because I haven't. Uh, off the top of my head, I, I would say no. I'd have to think really hard about it. Uh, but right off the top of my head, I, I've, there's never been another situation like this. Uh, um, where people were threatened with their lives if they talk. And, you know, the, the, the military only has authority over um, civilians in, in uh, time of war or when martial law has been declared. And neither one obtained in this particular incident. And uh, this weather balloon explanation, uh, around the time of the Roswell incident, there were four or five other weather balloons that had come down. One, one in New York State, upstate New York, one in California, one in uh, Circleville, Ohio, and one. And none of them produced a Roswell-type scenario where the military rushed out there and, and uh, uh, with with a lot of soldiers to cordon off the area and things like that and people threatened it never it never happened in those cases did the did the military ever provide an explanation why they didn't go out there for a recovery before the uh, the actual material was discovered by uh, mr uh, mr brazel they went out as soon as they heard about it they went out as soon as they heard about it you'd think they was, you'd uh, think they would have known about it and then you know maybe beat mr brazel <laughs> to the side well, if it was, if it was one of ours, they would have known about right. it, but uh, but but uh, it wasn't one of ours, so they didn't know about it. And way out in that desert area, you can see for 50 miles around, and there wasn't anybody looking. There wasn't anybody looking. Right, but and, uh, but assuming that they were, you know, if they said it was a a, a radar um, device, um, a test device, and it was floating out there in the middle of the desert, you would think that they would have arrived shortly after it would have crashed to uh, contain the area or, or something. What they, claim, what they claim was in 1997, I'm sorry, in 1994, the Air Force changed their story that it wasn't a weather balloon. It was this Project Mogul, which was right. a series of balloons, which uh, carried aloft that they were launched from Alamogordo, New Mexico, starting in the summer of 1947. It was a, a number of, uh, weather balloons uh, tacked on one one after another, and uh, it, it, what it was supposed to do was take a listening device, an acoustic sensor, up into the uh, atmosphere, stratosphere, whatever you call it. But there's one level up there which carries sound very well, and it, the idea was to put these acoustic sen- sensors up and keep them up at a constant level, uh, listening in for what they believe would be a... Uh, the uh, first atomic device detonated by the Soviet Union. They thought that was on the one, you know, was coming along, 
that they, they wanted to listen in on it. And it wasn't actually until two years later that the Soviets actually detonated their first atomic bomb. But Project Mogul was to send these balloons up carrying a microphone, a, a acoustic sensor, keep it up there. And uh, if it came down, there were instructions on this array well, where to uh, take the, uh, you know, uh, to who to contact to have them come out and pick it up. Well, they claim that this certain launch uh, from July the 4th, uh, I'm sorry, from June 4th, uh, they never found. And they claim, oh, that must be the Ros, that must be what they found at Roswell because uh, we never did recover it. And uh, so that's, the, if you ask them today, that's what, that's what they'll tell you. It's this June 4th launch of a, uh, one of these balloons devices that they never, uh, because they actually scrubbed the, the test because of the cloud cover. So they took the acoustic sensors off and just uh, let the balloons go. And uh, they claim, well, th that must be what they found at Roswell, all these balloons and uh, radar targets. It, it's just, it's ridiculous. It's ridiculous because uh it would have come down in a day or two and uh, the ranchers, they were sheep ranchers out there and sheep will, sheep will eat anything and they would not allow something like that to stay out there because it would, you know, the sheep would uh, eat anything. And if they swallowed some of this rubber, you know, rubber balloon stuff, they would choke, they would choke. And uh, so that, that story is just so phony on so many levels uh, that uh, it's just, doesn't hold water. One so. thing, one thing I wonder about that is why, after forty-five years, did the uh, government and the military feel that they needed to provide some sort of explanation at all? Why couldn't they have just ignored it? What happened? Here's the reason: uh, was that in 1980, you had the first book, the Roswell incident. Unfortunately, it was another ten years before the second book came out, but. In uh, also in 1980, you remember that show called In Search of? Yeah. It was a half hour show by uh, Leonard Nimoy, who played Dr. Spock on Star Trek. And in one of the one of the shows was totally devoted to the Roswell crash. Now this was 1980, the same year that the the uh, book came out. 1980 was also the same year that a picture called Hangar 18 came out which was about a hangar. In this case, it was in Texas where uh, a UFO, a crashed UFO was stored. It starred, uh, oh, the man from UNCLE, what was his name? Robert Vaughn, uh, Gary Collins, and uh, somebody else I can't remember. Uh, so you had that going on, but 10 years went by. But the first book by Kevin Randall and Donald Schmidt, who had hooked up in 1988 to reopen the Roswell case, the first book came out in 1991 by those two, and that really lit the fire. That uh, because it was had so much more information, detailed information about the Roswell crash than the first book in 1980 by William Moore and Charles Berlitz. And that book, uh, considering 
the TV shows, and I left out, there's, there was a TV show called, uh, it, it, Robert Stack was the host, the host uh, Unsolved Mysteries. Remember that? Mm-hmm. You bet. In 1989, September of 1989, the first show of the new season was devoted to Roswell. This is 1989. And Randall and Schmidt are already at work on the case. So you have that uh, Unsolved Mysteries show devote the whole show to the, the Roswell case. Randall and Schmidt's new book, comes out in 1991 called UFO crash at Roswell and the fire it just, for some reason it, it really caught fire where the uh, first book didn't you know it, it sort of had a, I guess a cult following wasn't a bestseller but this this new book just caught fire and it was so popular that the movie that the book was optioned and it became a movie in 1994, a Showtime movie called, you know, The Roswell Incident. So you had these TV shows and then the, the motion picture called Roswell in 1994. And the, by this time, the word Roswell had become a uh, become known around the world. You go anywhere in the world, say Roswell, they'll know what you're talking about. They, they know that something happened there about a flying saucer. They, they might not know all the details but they know the term roswell has something to do do with that so the uh the interest is now high and the there was a congressman from new mexico named stephen schiff he was asked by some of his constituents to try to find out what happened to all of the you know, the telexes and the, the, the things that pass back and forth between Roswell, the Roswell base and, say, their next higher command in Fort Worth, uh, Carswell Air Force Base, and, and Carswell and Washington. They wanted to know what happened to all those telexes that went back and forth about this. And so Stephen Schiff, was, he tried to get some information from the Department of Defense and they said, oh, we don't have anything. Go to the uh, National Archives. So Stephen Schiff goes to the National Archives. He said, why did they send you here? We don't have anything. So he said, well, they're giving me the runaround. So he tasked the General Accounting Office, which is the investigative arm of Congress. It's now called the General Accountability Office. Back then it was the General Accounting Office. He charged the General Accounting Office to look into the, the uh, documents that were developed during the Roswell incident to find out if they were properly classified and stored and handled correctly. Well, surprise of surprise, it turned out all of the documents had been destroyed by, an, by unknown authority. Now, having been in the Air Force myself, I know that you can't go to the bathroom without authority. You need an authority for everything. But the, the destruction of all the Roswell documents, however many there were, disappeared. They had been destroyed by parties unknown. And that in itself is some, you know, that just heightens the mystery. So uh, 
the Air Force at this time, they said, oh, what we're going to do to try to set people's minds at ease is we're going to uh, uh, conduct our own investigation of the Roswell case. And uh, so what they did is uh, they cherry-picked a few witnesses. I mean, there were so many witnesses. They cherry-picked a few that uh, uh, that said, well, nothing happened or it was a uh, weather balloon and things like that. Some of the Air Force officers who, you know, were, were uh, actually lying. And they came out with this report in 1994 really what it was was a a uh, vindicator was a supporting the so-called mogul explanation project mogul so they just bought into the project mogul uh explanation in 1994 but they didn't they didn't uh, explain the little bodies that were uh, said to have been found and so they did that in 1997 right before the 50th anniversary of the event, the big celebration in Roswell. And they came out with another book called Roswell, the Roswell Report Case Closed. And this really gets bizarre. They said that the little bodies that people reported seeing back in 1947 were really uh, these dime store mannequins that they tested in the 1950s in the uh, Project High Dive. They, they would take a uh, plane up to a, a hundred thousand feet and drop this this uh, parachute with a Stein store dummy on it to test the, the effects of high altitude parachute drops and but the, the, but you know but sir that, those took place in the 1950s how could that have anything to do with Roswell oh well they explained that by saying well when you get old, a lot of people suffer from something called time compression. <laughs> you, you, you tend to ascribe a uh, different time uh, to something from when you actually witnessed it. So, and this apparently only affected the uh, Roswell witnesses. <laughs> they, they never used it for anybody else. So they said it's the, the big, because they saw these, they were out in the desert in, in the mid-1950s, and they came upon these dime store mannequins. But due to time compression over the years, they said that, uh, well, it was back in 1947. So uh, it was uh, time compression. Well, the Air Force officer giving this press conference, they laughed him off the stage. They, he finally said, well, I'm not going to say any more about it. Now. That, that's all I have to say. Goodbye. They, you know, the media who is programmed not to believe anything about flying saucers, they just laughed this guy off. It was so bizarre uh, and uh, so unlikely a, an explanation that they, they just laughed at him. And he uh, closed his little book there and uh, left the stage. The Air Force has, <clears throat> that's 1997, the Air Force has not commented since on the Roswell incident. Another question I have is, um, do you think that Mac Brazel was part of this, the cover-up? Because he had made a statement, and it's interesting to me, that he made a statement that uh, 
or maybe somebody made the statement for him, but weather balloons had fallen onto his ranch on a number of occasions and that he had turned those in for rewards that are offered. So it wasn't unusual for him to do that. But to me, it seems it would be very unusual to have multiple weather balloons fall on a ranch that, uh, you know, somebody like that would find. And did that really happen? Um, who said that? And, and what does that are mean? You, did they, did, did somebody put words into his mouth? You got it partially right. Um, the ranchers were used to, to having weather balloons uh, on their ranches because the 509th bomb group would send them up all the time, you know, because the, the bombers, they every time a bomber went up, they had to know which way the winds were blowing. So they were used to seeing and uh, uh, collecting the weather balloons. In fact, on the Brazil Ranch, there was something we call the Spanish Well, where they used to just throw the, the weather balloons down the well. It was an abandoned, you know, a water well. And uh, they would throw the, the weather balloons down the, the water well because, you know, they, they, nobody, they didn't come after them and the, you know, they didn't want them laying around because the cattle would eat them. So they would throw them in the water well. And unfortunately, the... Uh, we, we believe that the, the GIs, when they were cleaning up the site, we believe they threw some of the pieces of the wreckage down there. But the whole the well, whole well has been cemented over, so uh, we can't get down there. But the Mac Brazel, uh, the Air Force, once they realized what they had, a, a spaceship from another world plus a few bodies, and the Brazil had already come into town and had given the story to the uh, sheriff and to the an announcer at the uh, radio station KGFL. Once they realized what they had, they put out an APB. We got to get Brazil. We got to get him. We don't want him going around talking about this. So they found him on the morning of July the eighth because he had come back into town to uh, do some work and he stayed over. No, he, he was uh, the, the uh, owner of the radio station, KGFL. Once they heard about this and they heard that Brazel had called one of their announcers out of his ranch, they drove him back. They kept him at the uh, station owner's residence overnight. And uh, the military by that time were looking for him, and they they found him the next day, Brazel, that is. So they grabbed Brazel, took him back to the base, kept him at the guest house, and they worked him over until they got him to change his story. They threatened him, and we only found this out this year. They threatened him not with his life, but with putting him in an insane asylum. They threatened him with putting him in, in an insane asylum as they did put the, the, the announcer for KGL, KGFL. They actually did put him in a, an insane asylum, kept him over uh, in Texas in a, in a uh, uh, hospital insane asylum for a year until the case blew over. But they threatened Brazzle with that if he didn't change his story and tell them it was a weather balloon. So he goes to... The Roswell Daily Record, which carried the big headline the day right. before, right. Uh, RAAF, and that's not the Royal Air Force or the Royal Australian Air Force, that's the Roswell Army Airfield, K 
captures flying saucer on ranch in Roswell region. He goes to the newspaper and he tells this story that he found this weather balloon on June the 14th. He kept it in a shed, uh, but he didn't get to go into town until July the uh, 6th. Uh, so he tells this story that uh, he's sorry he told about it. Uh, there's nothing to it. But in the last paragraph, he takes it all away. He says, uh, I know one thing. I know what whatever I found was no high-altitude weather device uh, because I've found weather balloons many times on the ranch. And if I ever find anything short of an atomic bomb, I'm not going to report it. It will only be like an atomic <laughs> bomb that I'll report. I'm not going to report anything else. So he takes the whole article away. The, the, uh, the article is called Harassed Rancher. Sorry, he told told about his find. And uh, he, t- he tells the whole Air Force story, what they told him to say. But in the very last paragraph, he takes it all away by saying it was, he did, it, what he found was no uh, weather observation device of a weather balloon. And if it's anything other than a, uh, a atomic bomb, he's not going to report it. He's sorry that he reported it. So, so you were partially right, but that's how it went. Did the uh, military did the military really hire local Roswell morticians to make child sized caskets? Yes, uh, they well they called up uh, the uh, the uh, uh, what's his name uh, Glenn Dennis. Uh, he later became a mortician, but but back in forty nineteen forty seven he was an embalmer. Right. So he took phone calls and. Uh, they, they wanted to know if they had any child-sized caskets available. And he said, well, we have one, but I can get a, I can order uh, as many as you want. I'll be here tomorrow. And uh, so, you know, the, the Air Force officer hangs up. And then he calls again later. He says, uh, how do you uh, preserve biological tissue that's been out in the desert for a while? You know, so he... You know, Dennis is an embalmer, so he can answer that. And finally, he says, "I'm sorry, sir. Do you, have you had a crash? I can be right over there and, you know, see what you see what you need." And the, and the guy says, "Oh no, no, no. This is all, this is all hypothetical in case we have a crash." And and that ended it. But uh, he did order more caskets for Amarillo, Texas, and uh, they were ordered by a, a, an outfit that. Uh, uh, their building was next door to Ballard's funeral home where, where Glenn Dennis worked. There was a, a more mortuary supply place. And so they sent somebody to, El, uh, to Amarillo and they did get a couple of caskets uh, brought back child size. So uh, that story is true. Hmm. The hypothetical um, crash scenario. Yeah, the, the officer, when Glenn Dennis offered to come out personally uh, to uh, see what they needed, he said, oh, no, 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 don't, don't, don't come out. Uh, this is all hypothetical. Uh, the rest of Glenn Dennis's story, we believe, is uh, false, that he made it up about the nurse, that he, uh, uh, the next day he met his girlfriend nurse, 
at the officers club and she told them that she had been part of an autopsy and uh, the bodies stunk so badly that they had to stop because everybody was getting sick. We believe he heard that story from another embalmer whose wife was a nurse who actually was called out to the, the uh, base with her uh, uh, superior, uh, her, her boss, who was a doctor. They were civilians. And uh, that's a long story, but we were, we were able to piece that together that uh, the rest of Glenn Dennis's story he got from another embalmer there, and he, he uh, made it his own when he went on uh, the, the television for Unsolved Mysteries uh, a couple of shows after the original Roswell airing. So that's what we believe anyway. Right. So we have a crash, and obviously there's going to be an inventory of evidence. Um, what does that timeline look like for locations of this evidence? Where did it travel first and over the years, where did it end up and how many different places did it end up? Any idea? Oh, absolutely. Uh, does a bear go to the woods? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, I knew you'd have an answer. That's why you're here tonight. <laughs> yes. Uh, uh, we, we believe there's three, three crash sites involved. Uh, the first one is when the ship blew up late on the evening of uh, July the 2nd, 1947. We have witnesses to that. The, the ship, we believe, was struck by lightning because the July is called the monsoon season in Mexico, New Mexico. Uh, heavy thunder and lightning storms, uh, oftentimes without rain, but just thunder and lightning. And if it wasn't an internal explosion, it was, uh, we believe, struck by lightning, and it blew the outer shell of the craft apart. And that's when all these little pieces rained down on the Brazil Ranch. And that, that we called the debris field site. That's where we did our archaeological digs. That's uh, uh, on the uh, Foster Ranch that Mac Brazel was the foreman. We believe the inner cabin or some sort of an escape uh, capsule continued on for another 30 to 35 miles before it came to rest much closer to Roswell. And uh, uh, we believe that when the ship exploded, two of the occupants were thrown out and landed on a low bluff two and a half miles east of the debris field. Uh, we call that the Deep Proctor body site because it was Deep Proctor who showed his mother, uh, Deep Proctor was with Mac Brazel when he found all this stuff. And uh, he was with Mac when they found these uh, two bodies on this low bluff, two and a half miles east of the, the uh, Foster Ranch. So there's two sites, the uh, debris field site, the, the body site, and then the capsule or inner cabin, uh, when that came to rest, it's much closer to Roswell we call that the final impact site where the remainder of the ship finally came to rest. Now with that uh, inner cabin, there, we, there were two dead, two dead occupants, occupants and one still alive that was walking around according to a, a, a civilian witness. So those are the three sites. Everything was transported to the Roswell Army Airfield, which later became Walker Air Force Base, uh, just south of the city of Roswell. Everything went there into the big hangar, 
the hangar's still there. It's uh, now, back then it was called Hangar P as in Fall 3. It's now called Building 84. It's still an operating hangar on, on the old base. And uh, so everything goes there. Now, uh, from there, uh, some of the wreckage, the ultimate destination was Wright Field or Wright-Patterson Air Force Base in Dayton, Ohio. That's the ultimate repository. But some of the wreckage and some of the bodies stopped over in Fort Worth on their way there so that they could show the next higher command, uh, the uh, 8th Air Force, for the 8th Air Force Command, and the general, commanding general was Roger Ramey. So some of the stuff stopped there for a while and uh, then continued on to uh, right field in uh, Dayton, Ohio. So those are the, and we think that some of the wreckage, because we believe all the bodies went to right, right field. Some of the wreckage went to Los Alamos. Some of the wreckage went to Alamogordo. Uh, it may be one or two other places, but most of the, everything went to right field in Dayton, Ohio. We believe it stayed there until the early 1980s when it was transferred to Area 51 in Nevada. And in 1996, there was a lawsuit filed against uh, the uh, facility. Uh, The the, uh, government refused to call it Area 51, but it was the facility in Area 51 because the they burned a hazardous waste there in open pits, and a lot of people got sick that worked at uh, Area 51, so they filed a lawsuit against Area 51. And Bill Clinton, uh, for the first time, they admitted that there was a facility there. He didn't call it Area 51. They just said it was a facility. And uh, when that lawsuit took place, we believe a lot, if not all, of the uh, wreckage went to uh, Dugway, in uh, Utah, it's like an Area 51 type uh, secret place. We've, we believe the, the Roswell bodies are still there in Dugway in Utah, the old Dugway proving grounds. Just like uh, uh, Area 51 during World War II was uh, a proving ground uh, for aircraft and uh, draw, you know target practice and things like that. And uh, so that's 1996. And where is the stuff today? We believe the Roswell bodies are still at Dugway in Utah, but that the physical wreckage is now all in private hands. And by private hands, I mean big companies that have uh, large government contracts. They're private contractors like Lockheed Martin, uh, you know, the big, you know, uh, uh, some of the Labr- Liber- Lawrence Livermore laboratories, uh, uh, Oak Ridge, Tennessee. We believe that the, all the wreckage, not only from Roswell, but all the UFO stuff is now in private hands. So they don't have to respond to freedom of information requests. Oh, Rand Corporation, that's another one. That's uh, stuff is, there's stuff definitely there and Lockheed Martin. So, uh, that's where we believe that all the UFO stuff, including the Roswell stuff, is now being stored. So do you think they're analyzing the materials, these private companies, so basically using the technology? Is that part of it? 
Yes, they started doing that right away. They started doing that right away. Uh, Battelle Memorial Institute in Columbus, Ohio, just down the road from Roswell, uh, I'm sorry, uh, from um, uh, Wright, Wright Patterson in, uh, uh, is in Dayton and Battelle uh, Memorial is in Columbus. Uh, they started working trying to re-engineer this so-called memory metal. This is the the wreckage, and there was a lot of it, of these little pieces, very thin, light, indestructible, but that you could wad up in your hands into a ball, open your hand, and it would just float out and then and come go back to its original shape. They tried to engineer, re-engineer that, and they were successful to a degree. They didn't quite get it all the way to the the original but uh, it's called nitinol it's spelled n-i-t-i-n-o-l the n-i stands for nickel the t-i stands for uh, titanium and the n-o-l stands for the naval ordnance lab who who in 1962 announced the uh, development of this memory metal type of uh, amalgam uh the Battelle memorial institute didn't want to be uh, they they didn't want their name associated with anything that had to do with the UFOs, so the the results were laundered through the Naval Ordnance Lab, and they announced it in 1962. You can go online, just put Nitinol in your browser, and see what comes up. It's on sale. You can buy it by the sheet. You can buy it by the roll. You can buy it by the coil. Uh, you you name it, you can buy it. But that has its roots in the Roswell memory metal that they uh, immediately started back engineering. We also hear, as far as the uh, wreckage it, itself, uh, and this gentleman has passed since passed away, that he was there in the big hangar in Roswell when they brought all this wreckage in. He says, I was there, and so help me, there wasn't a moving part on it. And I, he said, before I pass away, and he, you know, he was in his 80s when he came to us, he said, I want to know how that thing flew because there wasn't a moving part on it. Well, uh, we finally came to a conclusion that somehow the memory metal was the motive propulsive force of this uh, disc. It, it, was a, it was a, you know, flying disc. But we didn't know how it actually did it well we have heard since and, and, and unfortunately the gentleman died he passed away before we were able to get to him with his information even though he did live in roswell we have heard since that and we suspected this all along that they it, it'd, be, it'd be like giving christopher columbus a television and asking asking him to reproduce it he wouldn't know what he wouldn't know what it was, how to make, you know, how to make it. Maybe he would see the picture there, but he wouldn't know how to make it. They still don't know how the thing flew. They still don't know how to uh, back engineer it to to make it work. They just they just don't know. They haven't these seventy two years now. They still don't know. That's what we heard. So in these cases. Uh... Element 115, obviously not involved. Element 115, that sounds like Robert Lazar, am I right? <laughs> well, it is. Uh, and, you know, it's it's the only uh, probable 
propulsion system that uh, that's really out there. But you know, I do think that that's interesting with it with the memory metal and and its ability. I mean, obviously, there's something there, and there's something that uh, is to be learned. I want to know, um, you know, if, if we're actually using this. I mean, obviously, we've gotten some 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 engineering out of out of some engineering use out of some of these parts that we found, but what else? Yeah. I'm straddling the fence on Robert Lazar. Me so, too. so I, anything that he has said, I, I, I take with a grain of salt. I have, I, I can be convinced one way or the other right now. I'm straddling that fence. The uh, element 115. I did see something about that recently, but uh, I, I think it's something he said that he was aware of or working on. And then, uh, one of these shows uh, when TV talked about its development, uh, I, I quite frankly, uh, I, I don't know any more than that. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I'm not even on the fence on that one, so I'm not really willing to comment too much about it, but it, it's an interesting, it's an interesting thing nonetheless. Um, how many other crashes in, in that time period in the, in the late forties do we know about? Well, uh, we have a witness. Uh, she worked at Wright Patterson for 10 years from 1942 to 1952. She's in our book. I, I notice I keep plugging our book. <laughs> and uh, she was uh, she had a Q clearance, which was higher than top secret, which which uh, enabled her to. Uh, she was a clerk typist, which uh, cleared her to take uh, dictation from uh the highest uh, people with the highest uh, security clearance. And uh, one of those was a gentleman named Werner von Braun, the father of our space program, uh, uh, came over in 1945 with paperclip Germans. Uh, and they, they had developed their V2 project over there in Germany during World War II at Tienemunde. And uh, so a group of them came over. They were kept at uh, uh, a base, uh, an army base in Texas, Fort Bliss, and they 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 were brought into the when this thing crashed. They were brought into the crash site uh, to identify, not and it's, it certainly wasn't Russian. So, uh, but uh, von Braun became the father of our of our space program. He was a rocket expert. And in 1952, this woman, uh, her name was, uh, oh my goodness, uh, I've got so many names rolling around in my brain, uh, uh, June, uh, I forget her name, <laughs> but she was working at uh, Wright-Patterson taking dictation from uh, Werner von Braun, and uh, uh, she asked him, uh, the uh, and von Braun said that up, up until 1952 that he knew of three UFO crashes, three. The only one she remembered was Roswell. That was the only one she remembered him naming. The other two, she couldn't remember the name. But von Braun in 1952 said there had been three. So what the other two were, I, I couldn't tell you because uh, my focus has been on Roswell. So... So it seems that these aren't these things are uh, bulletproof, but but not bulletproof. I mean, they're capable of um, of of destruction. They've, they've 
lightning is is nothing compared to usually what they would see in 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 outer space or wherever they came from so um why lightning anything anything manufactured has its pencil strength when it's succeeded it comes apart and uh uh, whatever happened to this craft uh, at roswell it was either an internal malfunction that blew it apart or one of these massive lightning strikes that blew it apart. So uh, whatever it was, it blew apart. So you have a new big, uh, book coming out. And I do, I have your book, your, the book that you have out right now, Wright Patterson Eyewitness Accounts from the Real Area 51. It's a great book, but a new book coming out is called Case Closed. Do you feel that the case is closed or do we have a way to go on this and, and can we learn more? Well, of course, uh, uh, we've we've had a proactive investigation since 1998. Don Schmidt and I. That means uh, what that means is that we we just don't sit back waiting for somebody to call us or send us something, but that we actually go out in the field, mostly uh, New Mexico, you know, shaking the tree, looking for witnesses, conducting archaeological digs, things like that. And uh, what it means to me is that uh, the witness pool has really dried up because of the age, the age, you know. Uh, People, like I told you earlier, if somebody 20 years old uh, in 1947 is now 92, and uh, so very few, if any, firsthand witnesses, participants are still left and able to talk to us. Uh, we will investigate secondhand witnesses like sons, grandsons, daughters, granddaughters, things like that. If we're, if something comes along that we, uh, are motivated to, to follow up on it. But I think the proactive investigation is pretty near at an end because, uh, all the primary witnesses are, uh, either dead or at a point where we, we can't interview them. So, uh. Uh, that book, uh, Case Closed, will be out. It, it's planned on coming out uh, in June of next year. It might be earlier. It's already finished and at the the uh, publisher. We have another book coming out. Uh, we thought it would be out by now, but it's a coffee table book, uh, a picture book. It's uh, about 250 pages, but it's a coffee table book of uh, the timeline, the Roswell timeline in pictures. Now, over the 27 years that Don and I have been a team of, I've taken a lot of pictures. There have been a lot of pictures taken about Roswell. And we tell the timeline in a series of bullet points and photos. It's really something, uh, uh, I really enjoyed putting that together. And uh, they're color. They're, they're in color. Most of the pictures are color, and it it gives you it puts the reader like in the in the story because everything is in pictures. You can see who's who, what they look like. You can see this place, what it looks like. Uh, drawings of what the aliens, uh, what people told us they look like, the craft, you name it, it's there. And we thought it would be out by now, but the the publisher ran into a, a little glitch there. And uh, it will be out before this year is over, I guarantee you. And uh, so it's called Roswell, the Chronological Pictorial. And that will be out uh, later this year. And uh, 
we we think it's we, we think it's uh, something different. And I know myself when I buy a book, the first thing I do uh, is I go to the picture section. To yeah, me too. Go, to split it right in the middle and go there. <laughs> I don't know. I that's I I just have I just go to the pictures, see what pictures they have. So uh, if I don't see the, if I don't see that black line of pictures right in the middle of the pages, I don't even pick it up. Yes, yes. <laughs> so uh, we said, why not have a whole book like that? And we do. It's uh, it's about two hundred fifty pages. So it's uh, and you know what coffee table books are? They're a little larger than your uh, regular size book. So. But until then, um, please go out and pick up UFO Secrets Inside Wright Patterson. Eyewitness accounts from the real Area 51. Tom Carey has been my guest tonight. It's an excellent read, and it's from an amazing investigator. Tom Carey, thank you very much. I thank, I thank you. I am humbled. It was, a, it was so a lot of fun. It was a lot of fun to have you here. And, and um, you know, there's always things that I, wanna, I, wanna, I wanted to ask, and i got to ask them tonight. So, again, thank you, sir, very much. Maybe we can do it again if you have some questions. We have we have hours in the future, and I can't wait to read that next book book because um, it's one of those things that um, there's there's very few of these that I will actually pick up and read from cover to cover. And yes. you you are one of those authors, and and um, there's a couple others, but uh, you know I, I I love the perspective of the anthropologist, and I love the fact in Children of Roswell you quoted. Joe Friday and, and Franz Boas. So you have two investigators from different spectrums there. And, and um, it's, that, that's it, our, uh, we, we put that in the front of every book we've ever done. The uh, Joe Friday's famous for just the facts, ma'am. Right. And, uh, Franz Boas was, uh, I got that from one of my anthropology professors at Cal State. He said, uh, Boas said, uh, develop enough facts and the answer will fall to you like a ripe fruit. Yeah, that's amazing. Nice to hear that. Nice to hear the perspective from an anthropologist because I've been accused, again, of having a lot of anthropologists on the show, and I've had a bunch. So you're the best so far. Thanks again. Thank you. Take, Take care. care. My Alien Life You can find my website at www.myalienlifepodcast.com and please subscribe to my latest downloads at iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, and at podbean.com. And please follow me and like me on Facebook and Twitter. My Alien Life is written and produced for broadcast at Studio 254 in the Northern Rocky Mountains. The music you are hearing is produced and created by Elion. You can find all Elion's work online at Heart Dance Records.